Welcome everybody to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese, back again with the soul man, Brian Solak. And we've got a very special guest this week. One former Mariner owner, Jeff Smolian. How's it going, Jeff? It's going great, Abraham. Going great. Fantastic. Fantastic. We're great. It's great to have you here. Um, Before we get a little too much into the Mariners, I've been reading a little bit up on you and I've uh, read where you're the father of sports radio. This has been proclaimed. Tell me, how did you get that moniker? Well, we started the first sports radio station, WFAN in New York City in in 1987, before the Mariners days. I matter of fact, I have a chapter in the book. I have a favorite saying, the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. And one (laughs) chapter is idiot to genius, because when we put WFAN on the air, everybody thought it was stupid. Nobody wanted to do it. Um, It was Jim Lampley called it the Vietnam War of MS Broadcasting. Um, it was known as Smolian's Folly for a long time. And then we merged with the, we bought the NBC stations. We put Imus on, we put, uh, Mike and the Mad Dog on and the whole thing took off. And then I went, I became a genius because then it spawned <laughs> the sport radio. So then my next chapter of my life was buying the Mariners and my first few years out there, I was the boy wonder, uh, you know, it was on TV. I give speeches everywhere, Everybody loved me. And then, you know, when we put the team up for sale or before we put the team up for sale, we said we're losing too much money. We can't afford it. I became a, you know, a bum. So in Seattle, I went from genius to idiot uh, with WFN. I went from idiot to genius. And if you live long enough, you're going to be on both sides of the fence, guys. Well, this is very timely because there was a 30 for 30 that came out about uh, Mike and Mad Dog, right? Right. I I believe that just came out. uh, And that that's amazing that you were there. I, I did not realize. And I thank you, Brian, for getting Jeff on the show because uh, I would not have known that known to ask that until uh, just yeah. now. It's funny because I was, I was in the, uh, in that, um, in that 30 for 30. And I, yeah. I joked, they filmed me for an hour and a half. And I went with my wife and my daughter to the premiere and I said, anybody want to bet whether it be, I'll be on 60 seconds or 90 <laughs> seconds. And I think it was 83 <laughs> seconds. So. Oh. <laughs> oh, right on. Um, I read that you went to USC. Yes. I got I to gotta ask why USC, only because I went to Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, yeah. and right. Abraham's a Husky, and he also went right. to Eastern Washington. We're not very popular up east. Nope. Up there no. <laughs> why and, USC? And I, and I have to admit, in the interest of full disclosure, I've been on the USC board forever, and I actually worked okay. on that project about trying to fix the Pac-12. I wasn't involved in the negotiations to move to the Big Ten, but I spent th- uh, several years working on how could you make the Pac-12 better and the problems the USC faced. And, uh, and in fact, I was just at a at a function in um, um, Jackson Hole last night, um, and I ran into George Klavikov, who I like a lot. I think he's trying, but it's a it, that is a tough putt now for the Pac-12. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I also got to ask, you were in charge of the radio legend Don Imus. What was that like? You know, Don was brilliant, um, and it was funny. I'll tell you a story. When we when we merged with, uh, when we merged, we bought the NBC radio stations, and in those days, you could only own one AM and one FM. So NBC had a better signal. The original WFAN was on ten fifty, so we're going to put it on six sixty, and we we thought about taking Don. And I, I had known his agent because um, his agent, Mike Lynn, was also Robert W. Morgan's agent. And we worked with him in Los Angeles. And I met with, with, with Mike and we laughed. And I said, let me see if I get this right. We have a radio station losing record amounts of money. We have the New York Mets with the flagship of the Mets. And in 1987, that's when all the drug problems start. I'm sorry, 88, when all the drug problems started. And, and we got a morning man who's been in rehab more in the last four years than he'd been out of rehab. I said, <laughs> what a combination. What could possibly go wrong with all this? But we put him together. Uh, I love Don. He, uh, I will tell you, um, since I wasn't really in New York and I didn't listen, he took great license with me. And I'll never forget the ballpark in Seattle one night. Paul Newman was there, and I was always a Paul Newman, you know, big fan of Paul Newman. His agent was there and we were talking for the game. He said, I know all about you. I listen to Imus every day. He talks about your love life. He talks about everything you're doing. And, you know, it was just, that was Don. Yeah. You know. On the radio, you would talk about that? Oh yeah. Absolutely positive. Absolutely. <laughs> in front of the entire nation? 
Yeah, well, the front of the people who are listening, I, and fortunately for me, I wasn't listening. The joke was when, when we sold it to Mel Carmazan in Infinity, he lived in New York, so he heard it every day. The first thing he did in the negotiations is said, I, my name is never to be mentioned on the air. I it never, the things like that never bothered me. <laughs> speaking yeah. of speaking of jokes, uh, you also hired a young David Leberman for a radio show. That is you? correct. That is correct. What 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 uh, what was that? What was that all about? Well, the first station I ran before I started Amos, you know, the the book is really about the the forty some years of Amos and all the crazy things we've done. Um, but the first station I ever ran, uh, David Letterman was a weatherman in Indianapolis, weekend weatherman, um, and I saw him, and a couple of friends said funniest guy around and we were putting together a talk station and we wanted a, a talk we had news in the morning and sport uh, and sports in the afternoon and, and talk midday and we hired david for talk and and it was funny because i and most of the people around me were you know mid-20s david david and I exactly the same age and david's appeal was to people like us the problem is listening to talk radio um you're really getting a lot of 65 year olds and a lot of times they just didn't get the joke uh, so I, I, uh, my favorite story is, and I think it's in the book. I came back from lunch one day and a guy called me and, you know, I'm the manager and he's demanded to speak with me. And he said, you got a communist working on the air. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, <laughs> I called in and told Letterman that there are communists in Carmel, Indiana. And do you know what he said? I said, I don't know what he said. He said, well, you got to give him Carmel. The football team's lousy. The streets are always torn up and you never find a parking place. Give him Carmel and hold the line at the next suburb. So he, he he did stuff like that all the day. He one day, we have a monument. The center of Indianapolis is a monument circle. It's the center of the state. And he went on the air one day and said, the city and the state have decided to sell the monument to Guam in exchange for a 300-foot salary stick. The, the country uh, of, people, the country uh, of Guam? The country of Guam, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and people are calling up and saying, you can't take down our monument. We love the monument. And Dave's saying, hey, we need more greenery downtown. Put that 300-foot salary stick. He just did stuff like that all the time. A lot of fun. <laughs> That's awesome. I love Dave. And yeah, brilliant. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, I got. I mean, before I ask this next question, you mentioned your book, which we're going to – I want to get into more later, but what's the name of your book for our audience? Never ride a roller coaster upside down. Um, under my thesis, as I've said, the line between a, a genius and idiot is very fine, and I think life's a roller coaster ride. And sometimes you ride it. And my point is, my life has been so crazy sometimes that I think I've ridden it upside down. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right on. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a good. I, I like that. Um, uh, you talk about Don Imus and everybody else. Did you ha ever have any interaction with Howard Stern? I mean, I'm a fan of Howard Stern, so I have to ask. I I didn't. I've known Howard a little bit, not well. Okay. Uh, Randy Bongarten, who ran NBC, was Howard's manager. And if you read, I think the first book, Private Parts, Randy emerges as a hero. They were friends. And one day, um, in the the end of our baseball era. Randy came up to me and called me and said, look, I think Howard would be interested in coming with us. Um, and, and, I, and I remember I was getting my brains beat in Seattle. It was the, and naturally it was the radio recession at the same time. So the company's struggling. And, and, I, and I'm thinking, do I really need that more aggravation? Because you knew with Howard, you were going to spend 90% of your time in front of the FCC. And I think he's brilliant. But in those days... <laughs> You know, I mean, he, he spent an awful lot of time at the FCC. Well, when you say radio recession, I don't know what you mean by that. Was there a era Which where... one do you want to know about? You want to know about, you want to know about 1980 or 1991 or uh, 2008 uh, or... <laughs> you know, it, it happens I, all the time. I, well, do these come in waves or is it... Because yeah, I don't well, feel like, has, I don't feel like radio is dead. I mean... No, I, it's not dead. It's not dead. As a matter of fact... Radio has had a number of, of you know, of, of peaks and really valleys. Renaissances. Okay. Um, but in 19, I mean, if you look at the industry, it was really a spectacularly growing industry from about, I don't know, we started in 81 and really from 81 to 89, 90, it kept growing. And then if you remember the savings and loan crisis. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Right. And what happened was 
that crisis was a lot of highly leveraged transactions. Well, not only was real estate highly leveraged, but radio was highly leveraged. And what happened is when the government changed the rules, all these banks were lending to radio companies. You know, it used to be you could borrow nine times cash flow for a radio station in those days. And what happened is when the economy went through a downturn, as you remember, in 1991, 92, yep. and the HLT rules came, you had, a, you had sort of a combination of forces and the industry dropped very precipitously, led to a number of bankruptcies. I never knew about any of this. When you mentioned it, I thought maybe there was like a content consumption change in society. Like maybe people were watching MTV more or uh, oh, no, satellite no. radio. Well, but no, I mean, that's, that's, this that's is all financial. This is all financial. Yeah, I'm just talking about the economics of the industry okay. that changed um, and that led to, you know, a big downturn. Crazy. Never heard of any of that. Um, yeah. Actually, you know what I didn't hear about either, Jeff, was um, how, how did you how did you hear about George Argeras selling the uh, Mariners? Where, where where did that come from? Well, and, uh, we had, what made you when bite? We started when we started WFAN. Um, you know, it, we we inherited it with with the Mets. We bought the station from the Doubleday family who owned the Mets. So and we carried the Mets. So we knew the baseball people. And in those days, uh, it would be hard for anybody to believe this in Seattle today, but. We were sort of the turnaround guys. We were the marketing, you know, young marketing guys. And everything we had done in radio for 10 years had really turned to gold. And and somebody in baseball said, this is what we need in Seattle. If anybody can fix that thing, it, it may be you guys. And in those days, we could only buy one station in the market. So in those by that time, by 1989, we owned New York, L.A., Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, Washington, Indianapolis, uh, Houston. So we owned all those markets. So there really wasn't much to buy, you know, when you can only buy one station, one FM in a market. Um, and so somebody mentioned it and we knew some baseball people and we looked at it and I had always loved Seattle. I went there as a kid and thought it was the coolest place in America. Um, so I thought, you know, this would really be fun. Um, and I've always said, if you read the book, I think I just didn't understand the, the relationship, everything we did about the economics of baseball, I was really proud of. We didn't really miss anything. I was really proud of that. And some of the stuff we invaded, invented, which was groundbreaking in those days, you see in every stadium today, but, but it was all brand new. Um, but I didn't understand the history of the team and the government and the corporate community. Um, and that's just something that I just didn't understand. And we and and also and I say in the book I wasn't rich enough to own that baseball team I couldn't afford to lose fifteen million dollars a year, you know we got a, a twelve million dollar collusion you know payment out of the blue, as I said it was right when the radio industry was was struggling so my company, you know was struggling anyway, um, and so and I joked I said at the time to own the Mariners in that era before revenue sharing you had to be a billionaire and I certainly wasn't to own the Yankees or the Dodgers you know if you had a paper route you'd be okay. Um, you know, so, so it started off, time. it yeah. started off as a, uh, as like a, in the mark, as far as markets, a horizontal acquisition, but also as a vertical, as far as getting the media plus the, well, yeah, we, team. I mean, I had a theory, which is, you know, which I was right about that you were going to see tremendous regionalization of, of, of television rights. Uh, that was, that was my theory. It was, it was a bit ahead of its time because it was before you had, you know, all of the regional sports networks that really proliferated. Um, but, it, and we also had an interesting dynamic. We were one of only two teams that couldn't get a cable deal. Um, wow. yeah. and, and in those, those days, and I really thought that'd be the easiest thing to do. And I got in trouble because, and I, I learned a lot. Um, all of the sports channels with the exception of one or two were owned by independent parties, a company is called Sport Channel, and they negotiated with the cable system. When Seattle in those days, the cable system owned the Sports Channel. In those days, it was Prime Sports Northwest. It was owned by mm. it was owned by um, um, John Malone, who owned TCI. Um, so there was no middleman. So we thought this is just you know you don't have to pay a middleman anything. This is just a straight negotiation between the cable people and the ball club. This should be easy. So and the, I think the average. Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. And, and I'll never forget this. I learned more about the economics of television and, and, and life. Um, the average for a team in our market size was about $4 million a year. Now, it would be a little less 
because it was the West Coast and a lot of games are played at four o'clock in the East. But still, you know, let's say three, four million dollars a year. And they offered us like five hundred thousand dollars. And I said, for five hundred thousand dollars, I'd rather take snapshots of the game and walk around downtown and show people rather than give you those <laughs> rights for five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> And one day over a few beers, the guy said, look, we own this cable system here and we charge everybody in Seattle two dollars a month for Prime Sports Northwest. They don't know they're paying it, but we allocate it to that. We collect them. We own the system. So he said, I'm making twenty five million dollars a year on this channel. Why should I give you anything? I don't need to. And and that was I mean, that that and that is really the heart of the American cable industry. And and um, so. That's just life. So we could never get a case. So you had predicted the uh, Turner model where he owned a station, he owned a team. The team was content for that. Well, yeah, his, yeah, he, yeah, he, he bought that for content. Now he had a different model because he was distributing all across the United States. Mm. You know, I remember I I gave a speech in Boise one day and I said, look, I I know we will make it when I can go into a, a target in Boise or before Dick's Sporting Goods, I can go into a target in Boise. And, and instead of seeing Cubs and Braves jer- jerseys, I'll see Mariners jerseys. Right. Yeah. Are you uh, hearing that cat too much? Is that okay? No, you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> I, may, I may grab her and take her downstairs for a minute. If you don't take no, her no, her. you're fine. You're fine. No, you're, okay. you're, <laughs> we love cats, like we, we mentioned. So you're good. <laughs> um, that great, an- great. What you just said was all answers pretty much to what I have to ask. But when you bought the team, is yeah. it more is it more of them telling you that you needed to buy the team because it'll be good for your portfolio or is this something you always wanted deep down well, to buy a baseball team uh, listen we two things number one we bought it because we we always wanted to buy businesses we loved but we never bought a business where we didn't think that the economics would work and we did um and and we still do uh, well, we, I mean, I still do today. When we looked at it, we thought the economics would work. We always said we're going to buy businesses where the math makes sense. We're never going to buy a business where the math doesn't make sense. And and we thought it did. The world changed. I, I'll never forget. We did all sorts of models. And we said, if we can merely elevate this team to the to the bottom, I think the, the top of the third quartile in revenue and payroll, we should be competitive and this team should, it should be okay. And and I think the payroll we bought it was seven million dollars. We said if we get to twenty million dollars, we should be in the middle of the pack in the American League. And honest to gosh, at three years later, we were at twenty-five million dollars, and we were not only fourteenth in the American League in salary, we were further behind the thirteenth team than the day we bought the team. So the the math just changed, and it was just it just the math was just just tough. It's hard to believe a twenty million, twenty-five million dollar payroll today. Inflation, yeah. huh? <laughs> Pay the ball boys twenty-five million dollars today. Awesome. Um, quite a question about uh, your your introduction was also the introduction that same year. You you had uh, Ken Griffey Jr., the greatest player of his generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was that a factor in your decision to buy specifically the Mariners, or is that just lucky well, lucky happenstance? You know, yeah, I mean, we 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 knew Junior. They had, you know, yeah, we knew Junior, uh, and I'm a baseball fan. Listen, I was, I don't save many mementos, but I have a picture of me and Junior and his dad and Willie Mays, um, you know, in spring training one day. I was a Willie Mays fan as a kid. Um, you know, we thought it, we had a good young team, and we thought, you know, if we could put money into scouting and hopefully, you know, buy some decent free agents, that the team, you know, could would get closer. Um, and so that was the, it wasn't just junior, although I, I love junior people asked me, what did you love about baseball most? And it was clearly watching junior play every night. Fair nice. enough. Yeah. He was amazing to watch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you, when you took over, what kind of things did you do to try and improve the image of our team? Oh, we did everything. We attacked every single part of it. Uh, um, we really did, Brian, we, we, I'll never get one of my favorite things we wanted to do. We I, listen. Everybody said you're playing in a in a concrete mausoleum. So the first thing we did, I'll never forget, <laughs> we went to the Lucas Lucas Film people and we said we really want to do um, special effects and holograms. Uh, and you guys have the world's wow. greatest animation group, special effects. So we'd like to figure out if we could do that in the ballpark. 
Uh, so, for example, our, our you know example was you're down five runs going into the uh, what, the bottom of the fifth inning, uh, and and thunder and lightning comes on. You know, so the people think, oh my God, the game's going to be rain delayed. Uh, just you know, so special effects of lightning. We had all sorts of crazy ideas, and they came out and they looked at the stadium and they said, you don't even have a sound system that will make this work. <laughs> Uh, I think that was the, the first inkling. I went to, uh, I think it was Neil Campbell who oversaw the building. And I said, Neil, w- w- we got to get a sound system. The, the Lucas people say nobody can hear anything, even if we do all these great special effects. And he said, Jeff, we don't have any money for sound system. So we had to put up the money and then the county agreed they would pay it later. But that was sort of my introduction. To, and, and Neil was very upfront. He said, this building was built on the cheap. It was never finished. And he gave me, I'll never forget, he gave me a tour of the kingdom one day and you, you could see exposed wires. And he said, I'll never forget prophetically, he said, I, we got an air conditioning system. It's just never been properly you know, maintained. And a few years later, the whole thing collapsed. So he said, that's just life, you know, and um, but we had all sorts. I mean, we, you know, we, we did what we could. I mean, we, we put colorful stuff outside out in the outfield and we put a kid's corner up in the right field area, which was novel at the time. We had singles nights. Um, we had um, the, the one, the funny thing was that it was kind of ironic. Uh, Stuart Lamb was head of our marketing and he came up with an idea and he said, let's play um, video games before the game for charity. We'll have two kids who play video games on the Diamond Vision with Nintendo games. Yeah. And then they'll win, they'll win prizes and we'll also donate money to charity. And we all said, that's a great idea. So he went to Nintendo and said, if you put up $100,000, we'll do this. And they turned him down cold. <laughs> so <laughs> the next year he went to him and said, well, how about $50,000? They turned him down cold. He said, well, I'll tell you what, you just let us give the, the rights to use the video games and we'll find another sponsor. And they said, do you not understand? We just don't care about baseball. It doesn't matter to us. And I always laughed about the story that the day they bought the team, they had never owned a season ticket for the Mariners. <laughs> just, you know, just one. And they bought the team for different purposes, which I talk about in the book. Um, but it was, you know, we, we had all, but we did all sorts of crazy stuff. We had singles nights and uh, we had date nights where, and we had, you know, a bachelor and uh, there were three guys and a woman and the fans cheered and they always took the guy that, you know, the woman clearly didn't want we we had all we had more fun we did situational music i can still that was one of my projects as i knew music and it was sort of like come up with music for a situation um and and i can remember the one that we used that we thought we were gonna get in trouble we had lewis polonia uh, and yeah and, and polonia was you know, had been arrested on a statutory rape charge, and he came up with that, and, and we we played. She was just seventeen. You know what I mean? And oh no! So we, had, we, did, we had more fun. I, I was so proud. I've always said my best friend Gary Kasem was president of the team, and the day we sold the team, he said, "What could we have done different?" And I said, "Gary, we could. We you will look back on this as the best management you ever did." And I I believe that. I thought what we did. The marketing and and the increase with the fans and the perception. I'll never forget. We were talking to some of our lobbyists in Tacoma after the first year, and 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 they 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 came back and they said, "Well, this is good news. Your ownership group is loved by the legislature, loved." And that that's I said, "What's the bad news?" This is the bad news is now they hate the players. So it doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, Jeff, you're actually Jeff, you're actually bringing up a theme. Uh, We'll ask more questions about this. But I just think about two kids playing video games on the Jumbotron. Yeah. And then I think about what's going on in the world in the last five yeah. years. Esports yeah. on Twitch draws Absolutely. tremendous ratings. Like, did you ever yeah, did you ever sit back sometimes and be just like, I thought of that and like no, everybody said I never, no. I never did that. <laughs> I, 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 listen, the notion that fifteen thousand people will fill an arena to watch kids play video games is still beyond me. You know, to have two kids before a ball game playing for five minutes for charity is one thing, but to see 15,000 people go watch people play video games, it's still beyond my comprehension level, guys. And people do it nowadays, but anyway, um, got, got, got a question for you. Uh, let's get to the, uh, let's get to the, uh, the field. Well, not on the field, but let's talk about uh, your GM, Woody Woodward. Um, yep. Were you more of a, uh, were you more of an owner who got involved in the daily uh, strategy and or 
uh, you know, you know, uh, draft picks and whatnot, or were you pretty hands off and let him do what he uh, was doing? And this comports with my management philosophy. I have always said, you got to let people do their job. When they ask your opinion, you give it. Um, you know, I, I always said, look, my baseball people are going to know more, you know, by hundreds of thousands of things than I am. Um, sometimes we would talk about allocation of resources. I will remember one time when we talked about the Kevin Mitchell trade and they said, what do you think? And I said, well, you obviously, the, the team has to have somebody hit behind junior. And this is clearly a quality, you know, number four hitter. And we seem to have an overabundance of, you know, relievers. Uh, so it seemed like we can, you know, allocate one way. So that was my opinion. By the way, it was totally wrong because if you remember, <laughs> Kevin came and did a home run for five months and for five <laughs> weeks, and and uh, Dave Burba and I'll never forget somebody said, "Well, Mike Jackson's arm not very good. I don't know how long he's going to last in this league." Um, so he was one of the tr people traded, as, as was Billy Swift, who also they worried about his arm and his durability, and Dave Burba. And I think 15 years later, Mike Jackson finally retired. So I'm not sure that medical <laughs> advice. And Billy Swift had a good Billy, career, too. Yeah. And I think Billy won his first. They made Billy a starter in San Francisco. And I think he won his first seven starts. So you never know. I mean, but yeah, they asked me, but I'm not one of these guys that say, you're going to pitch so-and-so. And I and I was not, I was kidded. George Argos was a guy who danced on the dugout. And I said, if you ever see me dancing on the dugout or calling <laughs> down to the dugout during a game and giving an order, shoot first and ask questions later that, you know, and, and we were very stoic. Um, people would come in and we had to entertain at the owner's box. And one night we lost another heartbreaking game. Um, and we, we always said, thanks for coming. Nice to see it. And one guy's walking out and said, you guys are so, so cordial and nice. And hey, how do you do it? You just lost in the ninth inning. And my God. And I turned to him and said, you see that wall over there, Gary and I and Stuart, when everybody leaves this room, we're going to go to that wall and we're going to hit our heads against that wall <laughs> for 10 straight minutes. But we're not going to do that with all of our guests here. And he laughed. But I mean, you know, you, you know, my dad, my, my late dad, we're sitting there after I was out of base or when I think when I was in baseball uh, and are watching a Pacer game and I'm cheering like a fan. He said, you know, I've sat at the ballpark with you. You'd never do this. And I said, you know, I want to I want to be stoic and I want to have decorum. Uh, and it's just a lot easier to be a fan and cheer uh, when you're the owner. You're wondering who's got a drug problem, and <laughs> we have our, our concessions, and you know what's our lease like. You know, so when you're a fan, you just be a fan. Yeah. Brian, Brian, he just mentioned dancing on the dugout. Yeah, <laughs> no I think comment. you got a. I think you no, you got a question on our sheet about oh, go this. Ahead. <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, Matt Matthew Page is not with us tonight. Abraham always. Give me a bunch of crap for this, but I think that when you're up to bat, all the players and managers should be standing in that dugout and cheering on your team 24-7. Yeah. And yeah. I see it every day, these guys just sitting on there, you know what, and yeah. they don't seem to care. So, I mean, what are your thoughts well, on I think, I think they do. It's, it, you know, baseball <laughs> baseball is, is such a cerebral, scholarly, slower sport. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but I mean, guys cared. Believe me, I, I saw a lot of guys in rallies in ninth inning going crazy in that dugout. So, you know, it, it never bothered me. I always thought our guys cared. I never thought anybody was phoning it in. Well, I, have, I have a favorite saying about work. <laughs> I have a favorite saying about work. I've never seen anybody go to the office in the morning and say, how do I screw up my job? And I feel that way, whether it was players or disc jockeys or any salespeople, people usually care. And our job as managers is to give them the tools to do things, you know, right. Hey, Brian, I wasn't trying to call you out for not having fun watching the game. I was trying to, I was mentioning more a certain mascot. Oh, well, we okay. Can, uh, okay. Yeah. The moose? Yes. The moose. I hear you're responsible for the moose. I'm sorry. Abraham. <laughs> That's moose. what I mean by dancing on the, on the dugout. Well, that was the moose can always dance. This I was talking about George Argeros dancing on the dugout. The moose can always dance. <laughs> I, and who I danced? Who never. danced better, George Argeros or the Moose? That's our <laughs> uh, real question. <laughs> as a matter of fact, when Steve Steve Kelly just ripped me at the tour of the end of our tenure, and he said the only thing he ever did was he he, he brought a lame moose. That's all he ever did for Seattle. The most but beloved loved, mascot loved, in all of Seattle. <laughs> I love I love the Moose. It was my that was one. It, well, I'm going to tell this. I don't know how well this is known, 
we had a mascot contest. Um, and that looks like a cat right there. Mine is perched <laughs> on the balcony. I'm afraid the cat's going to jump over and kill herself. But um, we had a mascot contest. And I, I'll never forget, I was a Bullwinkle fan. And Monica Hart and I went to a Bullwinkle retrospective uh, at, um, at the University of Washington. Oh, okay. and there was, you know, there was at the theater there and there was a retrospective one night and we sat there and laughed all night. And I think the next day I came in and said, Hey, do we have any moose entries? What about a moose? Every, you know, we have salmon and mariners and fish and everything. What about a moose entry? And we had a few moose entries and I don't want, wasn't rigged. I wouldn't want to say that, but I suggested maybe a moose would be fun. Um, and you know, lo and behold, they liked the moose entry and we pick a moose. And I always thought that probably is the only thing I ever did that people in Seattle do like. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but we picked the moose and he was the home run. And um, and he did a great job. That That is not the only thing we like. By the way, he's the most beloved mascot in all of the of all of our teams. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. But yes. I mean, we were also Lefevre believers. And in 91, you gave a lot of us uh, our first taste of a winning season. And, yeah, you know, yeah. just great players up and down that, yeah. that roster. And was, yeah. you know, was it rough that that was kind of like, that's the time where you had to sell, like right well, when you built it you into know, a I winner. Mean, we got, yeah. I mean, again, it was a started downturn in radio. I mean, the, the, the thing I always marveled about was, was the, the, the infamous bank memo. Um, bank I don't know memo. how much you remember it, No, but, well, that was the Seattle Times, and they made it sort of like Watergate. And what it was was a meeting of our bankers with Gary Kasif, and they said, look, this team's not making any money. I don't think it's ever going to make any money. We well, you're you were losing. I wasn't there. I was, I, you, were uh, lose, you were losing like 20 mil a year, right? Yeah, we were losing money. And, and the bankers basically said, look, we love you guys, and we'd lend you money anywhere, but we don't want to call this loan in a year or two. Uh, and we want to know if Jeff's crazy because we know Jeff <laughs> loves this and we don't know if Jeff's crazy and, you know, or will he put it for sale if this doesn't get any better? And Gary said, Jeff is, you know, he, he's not nuts. He's gonna, he'll put it for sale. And if, if we don't make any progress in the next year, we'll put it for sale. What was ironic was he didn't say anything in that meeting that I didn't say the day we bought the team. I said, guys, we're going to give it our best shot. We're going to do everything we can. And we got a lease. And if we can't make it work, we'll let somebody else try. And I think the problem was that by that time, the team, I think people thought there's no one in their right mind who's going to buy this team again in Seattle, that it's going away. And the lease was you had a right, which is exactly what happened. The city, Seattle had a right to buy the team, to match any offers. And and I think that I became a pariah because people said, well, he's going to sell it or he's going to move it to Tampa. And because baseball went in Tampa, that was something else I never really understood. Baseball was, did not love Seattle. Not at all. Uh, and I talk about that in the book. Um, there was one story in the Tampa paper and it, the, the guy said 13 of the 14 owners in the, of the American league want this team to move to Tampa. And the fourth is small. And he still still thinks he can make it in Seattle. Um, so there was a long, long history I won't get into, but if you read the book, there, there's a lot of things people in Seattle probably never realize or kind of fun to know. Um, but, but that sort of made, you know, me a pariah. And then we said to the government, we'll open the books. And George Duff was great. And, and, and they appointed a committee, Herman Sarkowski, to study the thing um, and, and see, um, and see what it looks like. And Herman was wonderful. And I remember we took Herman through the economics of baseball and he went, Oh my God, this is awful. Um, and there's in the book, Herman, at the end of the day, we said, what do we do? do we put the team up for sale. And, and he said, if I were you, I just move it. Nobody cares in this town. So, but, but, but I love the town. And I think, listen, uh, it worked with Nintendo. They went through a lot of, and listen, they had the ability, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar company. They had the ability to lose a lot of money for a long time. And we didn't, you know. You, All right, I've rambled too much. No, no that's fine. great. <laughs> uh, you talk about in the book about Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox. I mean, the, the, I guess my question is, he seemed to have a lot of influence on you. I mean, what was your relationship with Jerry Reinsdorf? 
I got to know Jerry when we started looking at the team and we had mutual friends and he became like a big brother. And to this day, uh, he's been like sort of a big brother. Um, a, a, you know, just um, somebody I admired. Uh, we have a, most of my closest relationships is just nonstop needling. And Jerry and I can spend hours needling each other, but I, but I adore him. Uh, I always thought he understood the economics of, of baseball better than anybody alive. I'll never forget when I met with Paul Volcker, he was doing an analysis. He had just left the Federal Reserve. And he was doing an analysis of the economics of baseball. And he said, who do you rely on? And I said, person I rely on the most is Jerry Reinsdorf. And he said, it's funny. Just about everybody says that. He's a very bright guy. Very bright guy. Um, he appears to be curmudgeonly. Uh, he's not at all. But but he loves he loves the perception that he's a curmudgeon. Absolutely loves it. In, in in retrospect, I mean, your complaint was Kingdom doesn't make any money for for this team. The media deals don't make any money for this team. And then what happens yeah. about eight years later? They get they buy a sports channel. They build right. a stadium. Um, right. right. Like, it, it, do you take any like uh, uh, like take that? You know, do you get do you get any satisfaction out of like I was right? Like, did it no, just take someone else? Not. Did it, yeah, take the th- I mean, did it take the threat of losing a team for it to... Well, I mean, you know, I mean, listen, um, you know, I've been fortunate in my life. I've been right about a lot of things. I was right about the regionalization of cable. I was right about the growth of sports. Um, I should have focused more. If you read the book, you realize I should have bought other teams and didn't. Um, but, you know, um, I, it's funny. I always had my, my favorite place for my ultimate stadium was where that the veterans hospital was. If you overlook the city, um, yeah, Puget sound side, the old, I always said, you tear that down and build a ballpark and overlook the city be the coolest thing ever. Um, but yeah, I mean, we knew, I'll tell you a a great story. Um, when we, um, when we were in Camden yards, when you're in the game and you're competing with people, and they have new facilities. And, and you know that every new dollar they generate is going to be used against you for payroll. You know, yeah. they're going to be able to outbid you. So we were at Camden Yards, and I took my son, and Gary took his son, and we're walking around the ballpark with Larry Lucchino. Larry ran the team at that time. And I said, Larry, let me see if I get this right. You have no money in this stadium. This entire ballpark was paid by the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland. He said, that's right. And I said, you're in a pissy match under what to call it. Um, he said, you're damn right. We want to call it Oriole Park and they want to call it Camden Yards. And I said, I'll tell you this. If Seattle built this for me, they call it Yankee Stadium and I'm going in every day. <laughs> in, case, in case of use a line I can't use. So we change it to if, if, if Seattle built this for me, they could call it Alcatraz and I'm going in every day. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, so you, you saw all that, but, um, you know, I, you know, when I, my, one of my favorite stories early on was we played in Toronto and we're in the Sky Dome and it was, the, that was like the eighth wonder of the world when it was built. And I'm getting the tour again from Paul Beeston who runs the team and, and these, they had a, the world's largest diamond vision. It seemed like it went from the right field corner to the left field corner all across the outfield. And they, there's like a two minute Microsoft ad. And I said, my God. So I, I, I said, Larry, I mean, uh, Paul, what do they pay for that? He, and he called downstairs and he said, well, between that ad and other things, Microsoft spends about $350,000 a year here. So I called Gary in Seattle. And I said, what does Microsoft spend with us? Oh, no. And he came back and he said, well, they buy four season tickets and they have hacker computer hacker nights for like, so they spent about $16,000 a year. So we called him and said, guys, your world headquarters eight miles from our ballpark. And in another country, you're spending $350,000 a year and you're spending 16000 And they said, look, nobody cares here. They love it in Toronto. They love baseball Ooh. in Toronto. Nobody gives it. And, but that was that was what we didn't understand. I'll tell you one more. I've got so many of them, I could bore you guys to death. But no, I, 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 I would speak all over the Northwest. Yeah. And I, I gave speeches. And uh, so I'm speaking in, in Tacoma. And... And I, I and, and Brian, I think I think if you read the chapter, you might remember. But I'm speaking in Tacoma, and the guy is talking in the head of the. It was a, an accountants group, and the head of the group before the speech said, "Hey, you know what? What would help you guys if you ran trains 
from downtown Tacoma to your stadium, just like the Seahawks do. Right. He said, people love it. You don't fight I-5. You get on the train. You have a few beers. You get the, the, And I said, well, we're trying to do that with Amtrak. Well, that's what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, but, but the key is it lets you off right at the ballpark. And that's what's so great. And I said, yeah, I know. Of course. And he, and he said, no, you don't understand. The Seahawks, the train lets you off right at the kingdom where the Seahawks play. How far does the train go from your ballpark? And I said, and I finally realized, I said, it's the same ballpark. Right there. We're, we're <laughs> playing the same building. And the guy said, I'll be damned. When did that happen? I said, 17 years ago when they built the place, you know. But that was the that was the perception problem. There, um, there was a huge, there was a huge problem. People did not want to watch baseball in a dungeon. And, yeah. and that was, and we knew that. And that was why everything we did, starting with the Lucas Oil people, starting with the indoor fireworks, which we did, which are revolutionary. I thought the fire marshal was going to close us down. <laughs> starting with all the video games we did and all the stuff and the kids stuff. Everything was designed around that concept. That this is a, that this is a, an experience that people don't want to have. So you've got to make it so they come here and go, you know what? That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, because the second, the second, I mean, winning also also helps, but the second thing winning is the the second they built the uh, new stadium. I mean, it, it's people go okay. even when they lose like eight, ninety, a hundred games a year. Yeah. Like people still go because it is an experience an that experience. you're talking about. It's a fun experience, and and the other thing is you really have to win, and we knew that. Um, you were on track, winning. though. You were on track. We were on track, and, yeah. and, and yeah. if I hadn't had the radio problems and hadn't had. And, and, and you got to remember, that was the pre-revenue sharing days. So I, I can still remember one night we came in and we, we were the first team that played against a team whose just TV rights were more than our entire gross income. And one night we were talking, to the, I think it was John McNamara of the Indians, and he was talking about, I don't know how we make it with a $52 million gross of this league. And Gary and I looked at each other and said, shit, we got like a $44 million gross. You mean the Indians? And that that was before they built the ballpark. I said, oh my God, we're screwed. So there was all, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, but we loved it. I made so many friends there and I was always proud of the stuff we did. You know? And like I say, I have a favorite saying, everybody should be a pariah once in your life. And I was my last year in Seattle. Uh, you mentioned the politics too. There, there was just, it, I remember, best I can remember, is there was also yeah. like pushback, like, Sports isn't a government thing, you know. That's you know that kind of yeah. And, and the figure problem, it out. I got in trouble. I said, and I lived this for the last forty years. If you had the same problems I had in Seattle and Indianapolis, you'd solve it in three days. Because the ball club would get together with the corporate community and the and the government and say, "Here's the problem. How do we fix it? We got to make this work." Mm-hmm. And in Seattle, just you know, it's and I I also got in trouble. I said the problem with me is all the people I actually vote for, all actually get elected in Seattle. And that's the worst thing. My politics are the worst thing for the for support of a ball club. You know? So, um, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Talking too much. No, you're good. Um, obviously, you decided to sell the team. Did you look for local buyers, or did you go for the best offer that was thrown your way? I mean, we, we know what happened, but how did you go well, into selling the team? That was the that was the problem. It wasn't going for local buyers. The fear was there wasn't a local buyer. Uh, and there really wasn't a local buyer. Um, you know, Nintendo was not really a local buyer. The problem was nobody, there wasn't anybody. Chris Larson said he'll put up $20 million. And I think Craig McCaw put up four or five, but, but they couldn't find anybody. Um, and, and that was where Nintendo came in. Um, and that's been written before my book, but I, you know, that Slade Gorton had built his career on baseball. Um, he was the county attorney who, who got, apparently got tapes of baseball meetings right after the pilots left and, and basically said, you don't give me an expansion franchise and I'm going to play these tapes all over America. And that's how the Mariners were born. Oh, it was wow. a settlement of a potential lawsuit. And so he, he had built, built his career on it and he had gotten copyright protection for video games, which was tremendously valuable to Nintendo. And he said, you owe me a favor. And here's what I, and you buy this team, you'll never lose money. That was not true. They lost a tremendous amount of money over the years. Um, but 
it was, you know, it, it, he he understood, and I, we all and I and we understood. We said it's going to be hard to find somebody who wants to buy this team in Seattle. But that deal was kind of that, that blew all the other deals out of the water, right? One hundred million, unheard of, right? N- no, not really. Oh, I thought there that was the biggest that. offer at the time. Well, it, well, number one, it was the only offer we had. We went through back and forth. There, there were there were not five bidders on the Mariners. There have never been five bidders on the Mariners. Okay. I mean, whoever owned them, I guarantee you. When John Stanton bought it from Nintendo, he was the bidder. When Nintendo bought it from us, they were the bidder. When we bought it from mm-hmm. Marcos, we were the you know. So there never been a not have been a lot of demand uh, in the history of the franchise. Oh no, what I meant, I'm sorry, Jeff. What I meant is that I think that was the highest, like that was the most a team oh. was ever sold for. Well, it was now there. There was there were always a range. It, it, I think the the price had gone in the intervening years from you know let's say the seventy five for teams to like one hundred and ten. I mean, it okay. was it was in a, it was in a band. It was not a knock them out crazy number at the time that I can tell you. Okay, um, I know we're getting closer to the end, but I I I, I got Good fun. I got two questions. I'm only asked my first for now because I got to say the best for last, but. Go ahead. In in your eyes, I mean, we got some awesome sports radio stations here in the Seattle area. What what is the future of sports radio look like in the eyes of Jeff Smullyan? Um, I'm I, and I I've obviously excuse me. Wait a minute. I don't usually get choked up. I'm, don't worry. <laughs> we we got him on a question, Brian. This is this is one that he's like, <laughs> oh, this one yeah. hits close to home. No, I think <laughs> I think the future is good. Um, excuse me. I don't know if you can edit this out. Um, my goodness. I think people care passionately about their sports. And that was a lesson we learned at WFN. First put it on the air. It was too much like a national sports network. People in New York care about New York sports. People in Seattle don't really care what the Philadelphia Phillies are doing. Right. But they do care about the Mariners and they care about the Kraken and they care about the the well, they don't care about the Sonics anymore, but they care about the Seahawks, <laughs> and that's and I think there'll always be a place for that. Um, I think the radio industry is challenged. Make no mistake about it. Uh, the revenues of the industry have declined. The fragmentation is there. I think the best chance are things that really matter to people locally, and I think that's whether talk stations or it's sports stations. Where you know, yeah, I will tell you one funny story. A an owner who should remain nameless, said when when sports radio was developed, it changed the nature of the relationship between players and managers and owners. Um, because if you got a bad column in the newspaper in the morning, you read it, you put it down, you went on with your day. But with sports radio, you could be the eye of the storm for 24 hours. And so my friend said, this format really ruined a lot of our lives whether you're an owner or a player or manager, because this stupid format, you know, allowed us to get ripped every day, 24, seven, 365 days a year. And so it really, it really put our lives under a microscope and made all of our lives pretty awful. And he said, lo and behold, I come to Seattle, excuse me. And I listen to sports radio station and the guy who invented this stupid format, is now an owner and he's getting ripped on this format. He said, I never was a religious man, but now I I believe in God because this is happening. And the guy who invented the format that ruined all of our lives is now an owner and it's ruining his life. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> um, nice. Jeff, did you see the proliferation of uh, like podcasting uh, years ago? Because well, a lot I of think, a lot of people you know, talk sports on podcasting as well and are pretty pretty successful and good at it. Yeah. I Someday think, we'll know, get there, yeah. Brian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the problem with podcasting, it's like the problem with streaming. Um, you know, streaming the math is work for music because you're paying licensing fees and you're paying data costs and everything. And in podcasting, there's no barriers to entry. So, you know, there's three and a half million podcasts. It's tough for most podcasts to make money. You know, for every Joe Rogan, there's a million 300,000 people who are not making anything. So the economics are challenging, but if you find an audience, then, you know, then it can be successful. Right on. Uh, can I go back one question? I want to go back to the politics sure. in Seattle. Um, yeah. I, I read that you uh, brokered 
you were working on uh, a peace between Israel and the PLO. And oh, yeah. I, I want to know what was more difficult, that or trying to deal with Seattle politics? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I will tell you, the, the PLO thing was was absolutely fascinating. And what ha what happened there? I, I, I did not know well, about this I until I read it. Know, I had gotten to know President Clinton, helped him in his campaign. And, and when he when he got elected, they asked me, you want to do anything? And I said, look, I, if you read that book, you realize that all I want to do is keep Emmis and do stuff with Emmis. I said, look, I don't want to leave Emmis, but if there's something I can do part time, I would do it. And they called me a few months later and said, look, you can be ambassador to the International Telecommunications Union. It's seven weeks in Kyoto a year from now. You have to do four or five bilateral meetings all around the world. Um, but it's not a permanent position. You're not getting assigned somewhere. And I said, great. And I did it. And I loved it. And I had a delegation of about 50 people. And a few weeks into the conference, they said, and you got to remember, this is right after Oslo. So if you look at the world in 1994, it looks like you're going to have a peace between Israel and the PLO, and you're, and you're going to have a separate Palestinian state. And no one could imagine that, you know, all these years, 30 years later, we're, we're you know, we're light years away from that. Um, and... And so it just seemed like an evolutionary part. Israel had never been recognized in, in, the, in the United Nations system by these people. And I got thrust in, and it was the most fascinating thing in the world because, number one, it wasn't lost, certainly, on Israel that I'm, I'm Jewish. I know it wasn't lost on the Arab states I was Jewish. And I think it really, it really forced me. Um, I read, a, a, years ago, I read about Henry Kissinger saying how he felt being Jewish negotiating in the Middle East. He said it just forced me to, to work harder to earn the respect and the trust of, of the other side. And I found myself doing the same thing. I bent over backwards and I, and it was, you know, we reached an agreement and I, I certainly the most noteworthy thing I've ever done in my life, but I, but it was fascinating. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think the PLO was easier to deal with than the <laughs> King County executive. No, I'm, just I'm just kidding. I have an 18 year old daughter who is, Man, somebody said, what's the an 18-year-old daughter like? I said, the only difference between negotiating with a terrorist and an 18-year-old girl is there are times you can reason with a terrorist. You know? <laughs> so, so, and I, I love, I, my daughter's a freshman at Georgetown and my youngest and love her dearly. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> how many kids do you have before I ask my last question? I have question? three. Okay. I have an older daughter who's a psychologist, a son who works in a business that we have dynamic pricing pricing and then i have an 18 year old freshman daughter um who's at georgetown and uh two perfect grandchildren and three children any two of which love me madly on any given day and it rotates you know <laughs> right on no, they're that's, all great. that's awesome um yeah uh, my last question um yeah I'm a, this, this is coming from my religious side but in next 50 to 75 years when we're all in heaven i'm going to go to god and tell him yeah. i want to start up a softball team and i want Jess Mullion to be the owner. Who do you pick as your first pick? Is it Willie Mays or Ken Griffey Jr. and why? Well, I'm so, you know, it's a great, that's that's the best question I think I've ever been asked. Um, number one, you're making a big assumption. I'm gonna be up there with you, okay? I'm hopeful. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm hopeful. I'm, um, um, I thought Junior, if he had stayed healthy, would have been the greatest baseball player who ever lived. Mm -hmm. Um uh, you know, and I, I, I was one of those kids when I was a kid, every, every kid grew up and they were either a Willie Mays fan or a Mickey Mantle fan. And I was a Willie Mays fan. And that's how I developed my love for radio, listening to rock and roll and, and Giants baseball games all around the country. Um, so I, you know, I, I would just say that I would probably rig the ballot box and get two first picks, I guess. Is the best <laughs> Fair enough. All right. I'd be happy with either one of them. Either right. one of them. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not a religious guy, so I'll just ask a, a, a question about uh, 2005. Uh, and yeah. uh, you were actually looking at buying the Nationals, the Washington yeah. Nationals team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was just curious, like, how, was that like unfinished business? Do you feel like there's yeah, more I can offer was. to baseball? It was. And if you read the book, we had a number of chances and we didn't do it. The, what, the one we really, we listen. It, David Stern was very kind to me and offered me a chance to take the Rockets when, when we sold Seattle. He was a big fan and very kind to me. He called me one day with one of the greatest, you know, funniest things. He said, 
I have a question. I have a bet. I have a $20 bet with a friend. It said, um, if somebody offered you the Mariners today for free, and the only conditions were you had to stay in Seattle for 10 years and they had the economics of baseball couldn't change, you take it for zero or not. And I laughed and said, well, the problem is your free baseball team under the current circumstances would cost you at least $500 million. It wouldn't be free after 10 years. And I said, that doesn't deal with the psychic cost of hitting your head against the wall every day. <laughs> um, but David was very kind to me and he offered us the Rockets and David sort of controlled the NBA lock, stock and barrel. And uh, I didn't do it because I said, I have to go fix my company. And I never regretted that. But uh, from a pure economic standpoint, I certainly should have done that. All right. I, I actually do got one last question. I know we briefly Fire talked right. we briefly talked about it, but your book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. I mean, who convinced you to write the book? I mean, what have can you give us a little tidbit to our audience yeah. we haven't talked about? Well, I think sure. people I think people will have fun. There are a lot of funny stories in the book. Uh, not only about Seattle, but you know, the time we got nationalized, uh, all the crazy things that in the radio business, the TV business, being an ambassador. Um, I think people will find it funny. I hope they find the lessons interesting. The genesis of the book is very simple. My, the same 18 year old daughter, I would drive her to school every day from kindergarten until she fired me when she got her driver's license uh, in high school. But we would talk about life every day. What have I learned? And I tell her the stories. And she, one day she said, Dad, you got to write this down. Nobody would ever believe these stories. So when COVID came, I just started writing and I've always, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, and I wrote like 300 pages and I sent it to a couple of friends and they said, you have a book here. You need to publish this book. So next thing I knew, I had a wonderful editor and she would, you know, say, uh, amplify this, cut this. And we went, we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, we got an agent and then we got a publisher and uh, here we are. It's been a lot of fun. Most, most cathartic experience. And I think the most gratifying thing, I think people who will actually read the book, laugh, and they like it, and it leaves them with something. So the responses I've had to people who have read the book, it's just been out a few weeks, but incredibly gratifying. Well, this has been awesome, Jeff. Uh, we never really got your side of the story. Uh, it's always, yeah. you know, uh, back then before the internet, it's kind of like whatever you read in the few yeah. publications you have or whatever, yeah. uh, whatever you and your friends complain about that day you know yeah. <laughs> um it, it's been great to hear your side of the story uh are you on social media and if so where can people find you i'm on linkedin uh they can find the book if they uh, I, if they just type in jeff smollian or never ride a roller coaster upside down you can get it barnes and noble or amazon or apple books or wherever i'm on linkedin they can find me there uh, I have not been a social media person. Okay. And for this book, they said, you got to be on something. So they put me on LinkedIn. Um, so I just went on it. But um, uh, and I hope people will read it and let us know what they think. It's been very gratifying. I think the thing that's been most fun is that people have read it, said, wow, uh, it was a, it was a fun read. Well, it was when an it interesting comes to being on something better LinkedIn than drugs. Right. So, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> Drugs is not really going to be a problem in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jeff Smillian, former owner of the Mariners and uh, prolific uh, fellow ambassador, uh, owner of Emirates, uh, media mogul, uh, all those good things. Um, we're going to finish this, the show off with some shout outs. I'm going to go ahead and start off first uh, to my friend Dan Magden, uh, Como Dan, as, as we call him. Uh, good luck. I know you're working on a project and it's had some setbacks, but you're an amazing fellow. And you're going to get that product out the door and you're going to be, uh, you're going to be all right, buddy. Over to you, Brian. I got two quick shout outs. I'm going to give one shout out to my buddy, Chris Lampkin from childhood. Tomorrow is his birthday. And I just want to wish you a happy birthday and all the best to you, my friend. Love you very much. And give those kids a hug for me. And then I'm going to give a quick shout out to our friend of the show, Seth Everett. I will admit that, to reach out to Jess Mullen, I saw that Jess Mullen was a guest on the show, and I'm thankful that he posted it. And I'm thankful to you, Jess Mullen, for reaching, answering my email, and joining us tonight. So thank you. You get well, the last my pleasure. You get the last word, and, Jeff. Well, I, you know, I, I always shout out to my family. Although I've got a dear friend who, David Benner, who's very, very ill. David was head of media relations for the Indiana Pacers for 30 years, and. I'm going to go see him uh, when I just got back in town. And uh, that would be a shout out to David Benner. Awesome. Well, thank you, our very special guest, Jeff Smillian. On behalf of Brian, the Soul Man Solak, 
I'm Abraham Deweese. Check out our Seattle Sports Union podcast on Captivate FM as well as Spotify and iTunes. And check us out on social media at Seattle Sports Union on Facebook and at Seattle Sports U on Twitter. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank you again. Appreciate it. That was fun. That was fun.